So welcome to another edition of One Bottle at a Time. I'm your host, Ronald Dorsey, and today we're joined by Mr. Mark Orwall. Mark has been a travel writer for four decades, including 30 years as an editor and a writer for Travel and Leisure magazine. His special interest is in local culture, and what could be more associated with local culture than food and wine? He has traveled to 75 countries and written about many of them. He's also the author of a new book from St. Martin's Griffin titled John Wayne Speaks. Previously, he wrote a book called E-Travel for Macmillan about planning your vacations on the internet. He is currently at work on a travel memoir called Just One Little Hitch about hitchhiking through Europe and Morocco in the 1970s. That must have been a lot of fun at that particular time. His freelance writing, travel writing, has appeared in Photos Travel, Porto Cruise Magazine, Condé Nast Traveler, The Travel Channel, and Fromers, and many other magazines and websites. Welcome, Mr. Orwell. How are you today? I'm doing great, and it's very nice to be with you. Looking forward to uh, chatting with you about okay. wine travel. Okay, all right. And uh, this is one bottle at a time, but uh, uh, unfortunately today uh, we're sitting out in a public park, so <laughs> we can't do the traditional bottle, but we're enjoying the weather anyhow. So, Mark, uh, when I invited you on the podcast, you told me that you're not really a wine guy. So why is that? Why why aren't you really a wine well, guy? I, saw, I mean, when I met you, you were drinking wine. I met you. Uh, <laughs> I met Mark uh, last week at the Trento Doc Tasting right. here That's in New right. York City. So why why aren't you a wine guy if you travel around the world? First and foremost, I'm a travel writer. Okay, and my my emphasis, my specific emphasis, is on culture, the the local cultures. What are the people like? What is their life like? And food and wine are fundamental components of local culture. So you know, I. Frankly, I leave it to the experts to talk about the quality of specific wines. Uh, I prefer to learn how wine fits into society, its traditions, its history, uh, the role it plays in daily life. Now, and I also like to meet winemakers. They are some of my favorite people. Uh, they're, they're fascinating because, you know, they have to be part scientist. Right. Uh, they have to be, well, they have to be part marketing expert because they have to know what is it that people like to right, drink. Right, right. Uh, and they also have to be part connoisseur because, obviously, if you don't love life and you don't love wine, you're not going to be a good winemaker. So they're fascinating people. And I look at, so I look at the sort of the whole picture when, I, when I'm writing about wine in terms of travel. Okay. And you've written about wines in Eastern Europe the Middle East, South America, and elsewhere. Now, how does this subject of wine fit into your travel writing? Uh, yeah, it, again, it's, it's, it's mainly about the people, right. uh, as opposed to breaking down the individual components of any specific wine. You know, I read the wine columns, and, and, I, you know, and I, I, I get it. I understand when people are talking about the amount of, of leather taste and the, <laughs> and the heaviness of the tannins. Right, right, and all. Right, right. That's not what I do. Right, right, no, right. what I want to know is what happens when, when grandma and grandpa come over for the big feast in right. this city or that country and somebody brings out a bottle of something. What's in it? Why is it there? How do they drink it? How do they celebrate? That's my interest. Mm, okay, that's wonderful, wonderful. So now one of the things that have, has been going on uh, you know, I guess probably been talked about a lot in the last five years in particular is climate change yeah. and how that affects, you know, the wine world and grapes and, you know, other, other fruits and vegetables also, but specifically how it affects harvest time, things of that nature. I, you know, I heard people talk about uh, their places in Burgundy and California and, and even in Oregon where they're starting to consider using different grapes. Yeah, well, you know, because that's, of uh, you know the harvest time, it's been coming early and early because of the climate change. So, they, tell us a little bit about that. They have to do that now. Um, 
I was very interested in that topic. Uh, I'm not a science writer, uh, but uh, I know how to talk to people. And so I went to Portugal, where the climate change uh, problem is is as crucial as anywhere else on the planet in terms of winemaking, certainly. Uh, so I did a story for United Airlines in-flight magazine. It was a, about the winery, specifically of the Alentejo region, which is about the size of Massachusetts in the south of Portugal. Uh, they only get about 23 inches of rain there all year, and it's getting hotter every year. So the winemakers have to consider just as you were implying, Ron, the, the, the right grape for the right place. And that can be changing. For example, Aragonés grapes have long been one of the most popular uh, grapes for making wine in Portugal. Unfortunately, uh, they're becoming... They, they shut down. The Aragonés grapes shut down at times of extreme heat. Uh, so it's getting impossible to grow them in certain places. So many Alentejo wineries, and I thought this was fascinating, are shifting their focus to other grapes that they're, they're using, uh, in, specifically in, in Portugal, using Antalvage, uh, Trincadera, Garriga Nacional, Alicante Boucher. These are all wonderful wines, but it's a significant shift, and the winemakers are having to adapt at, you know, with each passing year uh, in terms of their shifting ability to grow high-quality wine grapes. Because they can't do the same grapes today that they did even five years ago, as you pointed out. Right, right. Okay, so now when it comes to climate change, a lot of businesses call themselves sustainable. You know, but you mentioned that European wineries, they have a lot to meet certain criteria in order to call themselves a sustainable winery. Yeah. What sorts of things do they do and what sort of things do they have to do? Well, if, if the, the wineries of Alentejo are following uh, these sustainable practices, which I'll get into in a second, uh, not just for the marketing value. You know, yes, you can put it on your label, you can have it in your marketing materials, and that's nice. People, pe- makes, you know, people feel good. Oh, they're sustainable wines, but that's not why they're doing it. They're doing it because their their future is at stake. That's so. So the, the threat to wineries, and again, as we talked about before we started to record today. It's not limited to Alentejo or even Portugal. It's throughout all of Europe. It's in many, many places in California and the Pacific Northwest where winemakers are having to deal with the impact of of, uh, climate change. So one of the things in the European Union, now the EU, they fully understand the importance of the wine industry to the European economy. Uh, to the rep- reputation of Europe as a, as a destination, as a cultural heritage site. So realizing the threat, the EU has issued what they call voluntary guidelines, if you want to call yourself a sustainable winery, mm. that include things like uh, the treatment and reuse of wastewater mm. out in the, in the vineyards, uh, the use of water-saving drip irrigation, which, by the way, was invented in Israel, uh, which is also undergoing very, very significant climate change impact. Uh, another thing that they recommend doing is fertilizing the vineyards with a mulch of grape stems and leaves, and also allowing natural vegetation to grow right there in between the, the grapevines. You know, they don't have to clear it out and have a, you know, just a, a chopped up bed of dirt. No, they can let, they can let grass and, and uh, other plant life grow there, all of which helps to conserve the natural 
moisture in the soil. Right. So these are things that they're recommending and things that you have to follow as a winemaker mm. if you want to be called a sustainable winery or make a sustainable wine. Mm. So now as a travel writer, speech, yeah. speaking of Portugal, <laughs> Uh, where would you recommend people to go? Well, there's a uh, there's a town in uh, one of the. It's actually, I guess, the traditional capital of the Alentejo region of Portugal. Uh, it's called Evora, okay. uh, E V O R A, and it is such a cool town. It's lively. It's historic. It even has Roman ruins, if you can believe it. Tons of cafes, restaurants, taverns. And you can easily take wine tours. You can base yourself there and take wine tours of the whole region. As an alternative, if you're just going to Lisbon, the capital of Portugal, uh, it's which is one of the most beautiful capitals of Europe, by the way, uh, it's very, very easy to, to take wine tours strictly from Lisbon. You know, within two hours, you can be into a great wine region, uh, visit some of the wineries there, do some tastings. Uh, it's and the transportation is very easy. Or your hotel can organize a wine tour for you. It's it's a small country, so it's very easy to travel around. But Lisbon, in particular, and Alan and uh, Evora in the Alentejo are two places I would highly recommend. Mm, okay, so another wine country that's having to deal with climate change is uh, Israel. Uh, most people don't think of Israel when it comes to wines, except for sweet kosher Concord grapes from wines like Manischewitz. But you say there's a lot more going on to wine in, in the Israeli wine scene. Tell yeah, us, tell us know, a bit more about all that. All right, yeah, my, my <laughs> mother-in-law um, used to, <laughs> every once in a while, have a glass full of Manischewitz, and I would taste it, and i go, oh, my Lord, is this what Israeli wine tastes like? Well, no, there's a whole lot more to it than that. Uh, something that absolutely fascinates me is a trend, uh, which you'll find in Israel, a, a trend toward reviving ancient indigenous grapes, Okay. Um, now, the Israeli wine scene, the modern wine scene, if you call it that, uh, really started about 1882, about 140-odd years ago, when Baron Edmund de Rothschild uh, financed the first winery. And by doing that, or in doing that, he imported into Israel uh, grapes like a Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cabernet Franc, uh, Chardonnay, very traditional French grapes, right? And they did well, and they still do well. Uh, and that's primarily those sorts of grapes where you're going to find today. However, there are some people who are experimenting with grapes that have sort of gone by the wayside. And I, I mean, literally, by the wayside. They continue to exist, but nobody was growing them to harvest them for, for wine grapes. Uh, in fact, a lot of these, these ancient indigenous wine grapes uh, continued to survive for a thousand years or two thousand years simply because they were tasty. People, knew it. you could pluck them off, and no, not every wine grape is a is a table grape, right? right? Exactly. Yeah. Right. But these were tasty. Uh, now there's a, a winery called Reconati Winery. It's about, I would say, the sixth or seventh largest. It's based between uh, Tel Aviv and Haifa on the Mediterranean coast of Israel, <clears throat> and they have a great, great winemaker there, a guy named Gil Schatzberg who is really into reviving these ancient indigenous Israeli wine grapes that nobody else is using to make wine. Uh, the red that he uses, it's called Bituni, that's B-I-T-U-N-I, and the white that he uses is called Mawari, M-A-W-A-R-I. Uh, now, quite frankly, and if you go onto the Reconati website, uh, 
there, there's an article on there that I don't know if they wrote it or they got it from somebody else, but they say, you know, these are not ever going to be complex wines, right? These wines are, uh, they're, they're simple, they're straightforward, the kind of wine that if you have a friend come over to your front porch on a Friday afternoon, you just want to pour a nice glass of wine, that's what you're going to be drinking these are. Uh, what in American marketing terms we might call easy drinking wines, right, right, you know? Right, right, okay. So they're, they're probably not going to win awards, although a lot of Israeli um, wines do win awards. But it, it, so it's, oh, yes, one other thing I wanted to mention about that. Reconati gets its grapes for the Mawari and the Bituni, that is the ancient indigenous grapes. They get them from a Palestinian wine grower, that is grape wow. grower, uh, who, uh, who sells them the grapes, and then they make the wine from those grapes. Now, they're proud to say that they get the grapes from a Palestinian, because this is an Israeli winery, right. and they're proud to say that they get the wines from a Palestinian uh, grower. Right. And I think that's fabulous, but they don't mention the wine grower by name mm. specifically. Unfortunately, the wine grower is under a lot of pressure from the Palestinian Authority to stop doing it. Mm. Uh, A, because uh, under Sharia law, uh, you're not supposed to make alcoholic beverages at all, you know, let, let right. alone you know, wine from grapes. Right. And secondly, well, you're Palestinian and you're selling to Israelis, and they're not too happy about that. So, it's, <laughs> But that's one of those cultural touch points that I find so fascinating. Mm. And wine is, is at the heart of that very interesting cultural dynamic. So again, that's just another reason right. why I find wine and culture go hand in hand. Uh, right. So now one of the challenges with Israeli wine and the winemakers have is uh, that a lot of other people don't have is the wine, I guess, has to be kosher. Yes, yeah. So, okay. so what's that challenge? What, okay. what's that, what is All that right. like? All right, well, okay, <laughs> so you say big deal, so it's kosher. Well, it's, it, there's, it's a little more complicated than that. <laughs> and, and, okay, and here's the basic deal. I mean, when this was first explained to me, I, was, I couldn't believe it. Here's how it works. Um, anybody can pick the grapes for a kosher wine, okay? You don't have to be an observant Jew. You can be anybody. You can be Muslim, Christian, Hindu, it doesn't matter. Anybody can pick the grapes. Um, however, once the grapes get to the winery and they start to go through the winemaking process, only observant Jews are allowed to touch any of the winemaking equipment at all. The barrels, uh, machinery, anything. Wow. Uh, they, so nobody else can. So uh, that's, but the, there is an alternative to that. Because that can be kind of difficult, you know, uh, just in terms of hiring people, right? So the alternative is that you can boil the wine. Boil the wine? Boil the wine. Wow. As yeah. In, as yeah. in bring as it in, to a boil temperature. Boil. You got it. Wow. Weird, right? <laughs> I know. Well, we say weird, but, but, if, but what they, what the, under the kosher law, if, it's, if the wine is boiled, then it remains kosher no matter who touches it or who pours it. Wow. Uh, if otherwise, if it's not boiled, uh, and you go to a banquet, and you know a non-observant Jew pours the wine, it's no longer kosher. Wow! Just because of that. So this is an issue that, well, I got to tell you, they don't have to face in in Portland, Oregon, right, or right, right. anywhere else, <laughs> or in the Cote d'Iron, you know. Right, 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 right. That's, that's so, so again, fascinating cultural aspect of wine and how it relates to travel. I just thought it was fascinating. Wow. So now for you, one yeah. of the questions we like to ask here on one bottle at a time is, 
you've had the wonderful experience of traveling all over the world, but as a wine drinker, as a wine lover, what was that first glass or that first wine that you had that kind of knocked your socks off and oh, took okay. you on your on your wine adventure as, oh, okay. a, as a wine All right, well, drinker. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you the, the very first thing that, that, that delayed my entry into wine drinking was uh, a half gallon of Bally High when I was 16 years old. And I got so sick on that. It was the, you know, one of the, just a jug wine, right? right. It was terrible. It wasn't until really uh, toward the end of my college years and I started traveling. I, I, I did a long trip uh, to, hitchhiking trip to Europe um, when I was in college. And I, and I was exposed to wonderful wines from, from, from Spain, uh, from France, and from Germany. Uh, and, and so, I, I, you know, but I would say that the first wine that made me sit up and say, I mean, obviously, everybody could probably, in America, you could say Cabernet and Merlot, but, but the first one that really made me say, there's a whole world out there, with Cote de Rhone. I just, I just love uh, uh, wines, reds from the, the Rhone Valley of France. That's, that's, to me, and that was as a young man when I was in my early 20s. I finally realized, wow, there's a whole lot going on here, and I have a lot of education ahead of me. Wow, so are you a, a Chateauneuf fan? Oh yeah, absolutely, okay. sure. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I like to say they have the uh, the elegance of a burgundy and the power of a Bordeaux. That's, Ooh, guess, that's, that's a nice way to put that's, it. That's the way. That's how I like. I the, like it. I, I like, like the Rhones. I like that. I like that. <laughs> okay, so now speaking of hitchhiking, yeah, <laughs> you know, you uh, you know, you actually also had a book where you talked about that. Where you talked well, about okay. hitch- kind of hitchhiking I, okay, through, through so Europe. Or tell, I've, tell us I've written about a, that. I've written a couple of books. Right. Uh, I'm I'm in the process of writing a new one. Um, that is about hitchhiking, uh, which you could do back in the 1970s. I wouldn't recommend anybody try that these days. Things society has changed, right, unfortunately, right. in in some ways for the uh, not for the better. And uh, and I was able to I was able to travel by by thumb, staying in youth hostels, wow. um, and you know just living the high life at my, literally my budget. Ron, you're not going to believe this. My daily budget was $4.50 a day. And that included the hostel, that included uh, my meals, and included either some beer or wine at the, uh, uh, you know, at the tavern at the end of the day. Wow. <laughs> but wow. anyway, that's in progress right now, and I, I'm hoping we can have that out uh, as a published book. Call, right now, I'm calling it uh, Just One Little Hitch. Okay. Because it was all about hitchhiking, and a lot of things went wrong. That's okay, what... <laughs> so now going back to Israel, as, as uh, you mentioned uh, about Portugal. Yeah, yeah. Where would someone go for a wine well, vacation I, you know, in Israel? Uh, would I would, go? I'm going to highly recommend basing yourself in Tel Aviv for a couple of reasons. Now, first off, everybody should visit the old city of Jerusalem. I, I don't, I, I'm not saying otherwise. But certainly for a wine vacation, <clears throat> Tel Aviv is beautifully located. First off, that's where the international airport is. So if you're coming in from outside the country, you're probably going to land in Tel Aviv. There are, I think it's seven major wine-growing regions in in Israel, and it's a small country. So you can get to any of those wine regions for a tasting, for some touring, very easily from Tel Aviv. Also, I'm from California originally. Tel Aviv reminds me of like a really hip California beach town. They've wow. got a really groovy wow. vibe. There's outdoor okay. cafes and everyone's walking around in shorts and flip-flops. Okay. It's terrific. I wonderful. love it. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> okay, so now let's let's go a bit uh, a bit more east. Okay. Since we're in Israel, and we'll go uh, to that former Soviet Republic, Georgia. 
you know, you've traveled to a lot of countries, but one of the most, you know, one that has had the most impact on you has been Georgia. And uh, so what does Georgia have to offer a wine tourist? Well, what it, about it's, Georgia? You, if you want to know about wines, you cannot overlook the country of Georgia. Uh, in, uh, in, it's right on the border of East Europe and Central Asia, just south of Russia, uh, former Soviet Republic in the old days. They've been making wine there for more than 8,000 years. This is documented, more than 8,000 years, making it the oldest wine region on earth. I mean, you want to know about wine. This, you, you cannot overlook it. So, it, Also, it's their traditional method of making wine. This is, this is great. The, uh, traditionally, what they do is they have these huge clay pots. When I say huge, I mean a man, a full-grown man, or even two could fit inside one of these things. Uh, sometimes they're called amphora in English, but they're also called quavery. I'm going to spell it because it's a weird word. Q-V-E-V-R-I, quavery. Mm. Uh, and what they do is they take these, uh, these quavery, these amphora, and they're, you know, they could be 10 feet high, as I said, huge, and they bury them in the ground up to their neck. Mm. All of the wine grapes and stems and everything go right in there. And, uh, and they, they will seal it up, okay? And then every day, sometimes twice a day, they will go in with these long rakes, wooden rakes, and they will just go in there and they'll just stir it up, just push it down and stir it up. Uh, it's very natural, very natural. And, uh, and this is the, the traditional ancient way of making wine in Georgia. Now, some... Uh, They've been there. I, I met a quavery maker. He makes these big clay pots, and he ships them all over the world, all over Europe. There, so a lot of people are are even outside of Georgia are going back to this traditional way of making wine. Wow. But yeah, so it's um, uh, you know it's it's kind of cool, but it, also it's a place to find grapes, indigenous grapes that you're not going to find anywhere else. Um, now, 75% of the wine that they, that they make in Georgia is, is going to be white wine, okay? So that's just because of the climate. That's mostly what it is. But, uh, and the kind of grapes you're going to find for white wine are called Arcazzatelli or Cinuri. Um, a red is called, uh, one of the favorite reds that they have, and the, again, these are in the minority, Saparavi. Uh, they're all delicious, but the one that just stands out, uh, and, but you'll always hear about this when you're talking about Georgia, and Georgian wines is orange wines. Right. Yeah, right. okay. Every, you, I think a lot of people have heard about these. And these are where they have used the, in most cases, used the quavery, the you know the underground amphora, uh, with white grapes and leaving the skin on during the fermentation process. And it gives the wine this, anything from, the color of it, anything from a color of straw to almost a sunset orange you know you know you've seen these sunsets sometimes where the ball the, the sun just looks like a big old orange ball that's what the wine looks like uh, so it's crazy it's fun it's it's uh, gonna be an eye-opener for anybody and Georgia is a beautiful beautiful country too okay so now uh, going back to as you as, that you talked about earlier that wine is something that you experience with people yeah, and it's, yeah, yeah. You know, it's really that's the part of wine that you really look to enjoy when you when you travel around the world to see how the people really enjoy it. So in Georgia, you you said that they have a way that they approach it. <laughs> you know, the families approach yes. it and enjoying wine with their meals. Tell us a bit about they that. They do, they do. There's a tradition in Georgia, 
It's called the Supra. That's S-U-P-R-A, Supra. And imagine the very, very best Thanksgiving dinner that you ever had with you and friends or extended family. And, you know, everybody's around the dining room table and everyone's relaxed and the food keeps coming out and the wine is passed around. And you just feel like, oh, my God, I wish this could just go on for a lifetime. Well, that, in an essence, is a Supra. <laughs> okay? Wow. okay. And But they don't just have them once a year. They can have them as often as they want. But what makes a Supra special I mean, more than just the wine and the food, is that they have somebody who kind of directs the whole process uh, in a very easygoing way. It's called the Tamada. The Tamada is a, a wise person who leads the toasts. Now, you know, in some countries, like in Russia, if you're having vodka, you, know, you might make a toast, I might make a toast, the guy over there might make a toast. Not so at a Supra. The Tamada does the toasts. Mm. Uh, it might be to family. It might be to country. It might be to freedom. It could be to, usually to lofty concepts. It doesn't get too serious, don't get me wrong, but, but it's usually something noble that makes you feel good about having a toast. Mm. And uh, so he'll make a toast at, uh, uh, you know, with each new serving. And then in the terms of the general direction of the conversation, and okay. it's always a group conversation. Okay. It's not just two people over here talking, two people over there talking. Everybody's part of the conversation. Wow. Everybody's together, a real family-like feel. And he will kind of direct the flow of the conversation in a way that, because he's a professional tabata. Mm. You know, these guys get paid. Right, right. Wow, <laughs> he's a professional good. tabata. Yeah, so good. he knows what he's doing, you know, when he does the toasts, when he leads the conversation. Uh, and it's, it's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Mm. Uh, well, for me, it was a twice-in-a-lifetime experience. And it was just great. If you go there to Georgia and you don't know somebody who can invite you to one, you should know and check it out in advance. There are restaurants uh, where, that will host uh, a Supra for, um, for, for visitors. Right. You know, so you might not be, you know, might not have relatives or friends in Georgia. Right. You can still go to a Supra right. and experience what it's like. Okay. So now, like uh, Israel and, 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 and like Portugal, yeah. where would you recommend people stay in well, Georgia? Well, your chances are, you know, 99 out of 100 that you're going to fly into Tbilisi, which is the capital of mm -hmm. Georgia. Uh, and it's an interesting city. M much of the quote-unquote modern city is sort of 19th century, early 20th century buildings and layout of the streets. But there's an old section that goes back a thousand years, which wow. is fascinating. Uh, so I would highly recommend spend a few days in Tbilisi. But I'm also going to recommend that you go out to eastern Georgia to a town called Signagi. It's S-I-G-H-N-A-G-I, -I, I'm pretty sure is how you spell Signagi. And it's a gorgeous historic town, and it's on a mountainside overlooking the Kakheti Valley. Now, the Kakheti Valley, they grow everything there. They grow wheat, they grow vegetables, they grow everything. They also grow more than 80 varieties of wine grapes there. They, people call the Kakheti Valley the cradle of wine. So if you want to go on a wine tour of Georgia, Try Signagi and then take a wine tour around uh, the cradle of wine, the Kakheti Valley. All right, wonderful, <laughs> wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Okay, so now let's move to another place. Uh, obviously, all of the countries you've been to, <laughs> 75. Uh, let's go to South America now. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and Chile. And, uh, you know, let's, let's uh, you know, obviously Chilean wines have got to be 
you know, pretty well known in the United States. Right. And uh, right. so, what, what's your take on Chile and their wine? Well, you know, the thing is, uh, Chilean wine industry, and maybe look when you when you go to your local wine shop, they have New World wines, meaning those in you know South America, and of course in California and elsewhere in the United States. There's nothing new about Chilean wines, though. The wine industry there, uh, which was started by um, uh, Spanish missionaries, is even older than the wine industry in California, uh, where I'm from. And, you know, we're always proud that, oh, the wine industry started in the, whatever, 1770s, 1780s. No, this is even older in Chile than that. So, uh, so it, you know, it, it, it goes way back. The... the uh, the climate in, in Chile, at least in most of the wine-growing areas, is kind of a cross-section between uh, California and France, which is why you won't be surprised when I tell you that most of the wines that are grown there are you know, French wines, mm-hmm. French, French hybrid wines or French-based uh, wine grapes. Um, you know, Cabernet, Cabernet uh, Franc, uh, Merlot, uh, and, and most of the wines there are going to be red wines, but uh, the um, so there's just because of the age, because of the quality of the wines, there's just every reason to take Chilean wines seriously. And Chile, pretty cool country to, to visit. It's a it's one that's you, you know the country if you close your eyes and look at a visualize a map, it's about a million miles long and about right. two miles wide, right? right, right. <laughs> so it's kind of a crazy place to go touring, but it's it's well worth it. Mm. And speaking of touring it, what's some of your travel tips of touring there? Well, the uh, the main city there, the capital city, and where most people fly into is Santiago. Okay, uh, that's at the base of the mountains, not right on the coast. It's you know inland, an hour, hour and a half inland, and uh, uh, but its its location is such that. Uh, you can visit a ton of wineries within easy day trips from Santiago. In fact, there's there's one, uh, uh, there's a series of, I think it's, uh, was it, 14 wineries uh, open to travelers and all along a road that they call the Ruta de Vino, the, the, the wine road. Mm. And uh, so you can, and you can go out there and, and have lunch and uh, see some beautiful, beautiful old buildings. Sample the wines. Bring, buy some to bring home. Uh, but I would also recommend that you go out to the coast. Okay, and there's an old whaling city. It's called Valparaiso. You may have seen it, heard of the name, right. Valparaiso, Chile. Uh, it was the place where whalers would come, and with shipping was 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 it was huge in shipping. Now the, it, its fortunes fell. Uh, with the Panama Canal, okay, it just it kind of went downhill, and it got to be kind of a, a a really rough town, really rough town, even high crime for a while there. But it is so beautiful; it's built on forty-two hills surrounding this natural harbor. Everything is on a slope, and they have these elevators that'll take you up to, from one neighborhood to another. The houses are all painted these beautiful pastel colors, uh, and it's and it's much safer now than it ever was. It's fun, uh, and splitting some time between Valparaiso and Santiago would make for a great vacation, a great wine vacation uh, in Chile. Okay, so now of the numerous uh, sojourns and places you traveled, give us a place that you went, you know, that was just a, just a really, really 
unexpected delight for you. Oh, that just it, it, turned it, out to be a really unexpected delight. I never expected this to be so delightful. Well, I, you know, uh, it has nothing to do with with food, uh, wine, with people, wine. Whatever, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, all right. Well, I'm I'm going to tell you India uh, okay. because um, first off, the everything is to a Westerner like myself, uh, like most of your listeners. Um, it is a culture unlike anything you're going to find in. United States or even Europe. It's just completely different. I mean, uh, you know, people use camels and elephants to to haul logs around and the food is is it's not anything like just your regular Indian, you know, in your corner Indian restaurant. It's right. you know, I mean there's some elements uh, are are there in both, but 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 the wealth, the breadth of food there I find a very warm-hearted people there. I tend to really like uh, the the countries that are in that you know just north or south of the equator those kind of hot countries Vietnam I love um, Myanmar Burma I love that Cambodia I think the Cambodians are wonderful people the Indians Morocco the people of Morocco are so so fabulous Mexico and and uh, and, uh, and Central America like Nicaragua. The people there are just naturally warm and friendly, and so I think there's a combination when it came to India that the warmth and friendliness of the people, the complete exoticism of the culture, you know, everything from the architecture, the history, the language, to the food. Uh, not a lot of wine going on there, right, I have right, to tell right. you. <laughs> so I'm not going to recommend India for a wine vacation, right. but if you happen to be in the neighborhood, stop in. Okay. You'll so, enjoy so, yourself. So as a, as a place, it was, you know, that's Oh, it's exquisite. Like, okay, yeah, I just wanted to kind of go yeah. there for a second. Yeah. And uh, as, I guess as another a little quick venture, uh, travel and literature. Mm. You know, for yeah. me, those are two things that go in hand in hand. They I like do. to... I like to enjoy a nice glass of wine sometimes and, yeah. you know, grab a delightful short story. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. uh, I mean, well, in, in your travels, where have you kind of ran into those two avenues? You know? Well, I'll, I'll tell you. Uh, it's, it's funny you, you mention this because uh, the book that I mentioned that I'm working on right now, Just One Little Hitch, about hitchhiking through mm-hmm. Europe, when I was in Paris in the 1970s, I was staying, uh, I was working in a bookstore there called Shakespeare and Company, and it, I was able to sleep there. They have, they have bunks there that pull out from behind the bookshelves, and I was, in exchange for doing a little bit of work, I was able to, to stay there, and, which was great for a budget when you're, you know, you're only spending four or five bucks a day. Uh, and so Paris uh, had always been on my radar. One of my favorite authors was Ernest Hemingway. Still enjoy his work, but I was, you know, I, I idolized him when I was in my 20s. And I went to every place in Paris that he lived. I went to every cafe where he, you know, where he caroused with his friends or went in the morning to get a cup of coffee and, and write his short stories and his novels. And it was actually in Paris, because I was doing that, that it occurred to me, because I was at a crossroads at the time, I didn't know what I wanted to do in life. I didn't know. I knew I could write well, but I was thinking, you know, how do you make a living writing short stories? You know, it's hard to do. And it occurred to me that Hemingway was there in Paris as a journalist. 
He was a foreign correspondent for the Toronto Star. He was an American, but he was working for the Toronto Star at the time as a foreign correspondent. And I thought, Christ, that's perfect. That's what I want to do. I can be a journalist. That way I can travel, I can write, uh, I can do the things that, that, that I like to do, and get a paycheck at the right. same time. Exactly. Nice. And so that was, so the crossroads of literature and, uh, uh, and travel, uh, I'll be honest with you, it was probably more beer than wine going on there at the <laughs> right, brasseries, right, right, but right. Uh, even though France is well known for its, its wines, obviously. Uh, but uh, it, that actually made not just an impact on me, it, it changed the whole course of my life. Mm. So it's a very good question, and I, I, you know, I like to think that literature can have that kind of impact right. on people. Now, for me, you know, the reason I mention that is because what I get from it is uh, I can read uh, some literature, and the writer can just, like you said, maybe Paris or maybe mm-hmm. even New York City or San yeah. Francisco. Yeah. You know, I can read the writer describe a place. Describe the people, and perhaps I've never been there. Right. Right? So now, once I go there, it's like the story comes to life in a different way. Familiar. Right? And then, exactly. And, right. And on the other hand, it can be, you know, it can be a place that I've already been. Well, that's going to want to make you go right back. Right, exactly. Quick. Right. Because <laughs> it can be a place that I've been. I know it intimately. I like it. Yeah, then, well, I'll tell you, the right. thing is, I, uh, uh, I've been to London, oh, I don't know, 20, 25 times. And every time I read or reread Charles Dickens, I always say to myself, "Well, why didn't I go to that place right. where this happened in his in this novel?" And uh, it's you know, London is a very modern city, but it's amazing how much of old London still exists. That even from Charles Dickens's time, or you know, in in San Francisco, um, you know, uh, it just so, so many. Um, like the Maltese Falcon, you know, right, right, uh, was right. all set there. Mm-hmm. In Los Angeles, Raymond Chandler's detective novels. Right. And I love to see the places that were the actual physical settings mm-hmm. where the writer took off and right, took us right, on that narrative. Exactly. It, right. it's, it's fun to make that connection. Right, right, yeah. So travel and, travel and literature, like us, for me, they go hand in hand. Just like so, travel and wine, right. man. <laughs> so now you're also, uh, you're also the author of a new book, called John Wayne Speaks. Yes, yeah. John Wayne, yeah. the famous American actor. That's right. Uh, he died with his boots on. He, well, <laughs> so what's that all about? All right. Well, uh, I, I actually uh, got sick and tired of hearing quotes, people using quotes from John Wayne that he never actually said wow. in any of his movies. Okay. And I know because I looked them up, I couldn't find them, and I realized, no, somebody made it up. So I decided to write a book that it's a it's a big overview of John Wayne's acting career. Um, it, uh, it then also has capsule reviews of every one of the 173 movies that he was in. Imagine, 173 movies. I'm not sure there are many actors wow. uh, who made that many films. And, uh, and so there are capsule reviews. And then there are more than a thousand quotes taken directly from those movies. Uh, and each one of them has a footnote is going to tell you what movie that quote came from. And I've categorized them into, you know, so that if you want to see a, a, a quote about, you know, a romantic quote or a quote about young people or a quote about getting in fights, a quote about drinking, you know, there's, 
uh, uh, it's, again, that's mostly whiskey, not wine. But So you can find these quotes in those various categories and with a footnote that tells you what movie it's from. And I watched each one of those movies minimum of two times. Wow. Some of them many more than that. Wow. 173 movies. Wow. Uh, so I can vouch for the, for the accuracy of each one of those quotes. And if it's not in there... Tell you, it probably doesn't exist. Wow. <laughs> That's called John Wayne Speaks from uh, St. Martin's Griffin, just came out in November. We've already sold almost 20,000 copies of the book, so right, it's, yeah, it's getting a lot of, getting a lot of uh, notice from, uh, from people. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. So now, for our listeners, uh, you know, if they want to learn a little bit more about your travels, your adventures, yeah. your writings, what's the website they can go to? Well, it's, it's uh, very simple. Just go to markorwall.com. All one word, Mark Orwell, M-A-R-K-O-R-W-O-L-L.com. Markorwall.com. Okay. Okay, <laughs> so Mark, it's, this has been wonderful to learn uh, about your travels and how it intertwines with the wine and the wine world. And uh, hopefully we can we can do it, do this again. I'd love to, Ron. That would be my pleasure. Do it another time. And, uh, you know, we're not out in a public place, a public park, and you know, outside, and we can we can enjoy that one bottle. Let's do that right. next time. All right. right, man. Thanks so much for having me on. Appreciate right. it. Thank you. So once again, this is Ronald Dorsey for One Bottle at a Time, and today our guest was Mr. Mark Orwell. <laughs>